This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the first Media Landscape episode of 2022. I'm Julia Bell and I'll be taking you through the last week's news and preparing you for what's ahead. Today, we will be talking about tensions between Wales and Westminster on COVID restrictions. Also, the growing beef between supermarket chain Asda and British beef farmers. And then the perils that brands face as they navigate this new world of Instagram influencer marketing. This week's journal on the go will be sports broadcaster Tom Clayton, who shared his thoughts on the optics of the immigration detention drama between Serbian tennis star Novak Djokovic and the Australian authorities. So then, as this wave of Omicron cases continues to sweep across the UK, and I have truly officially lost track of what number wave we are on now. The Office for National Statistics released new data indicating that more than one in 15 people would have tested positive with COVID in the final week of 2021. And actually in London, it would have been more like one in 10, according to this same recent ONS data. And if you listen to the last episode of this podcast, you'll know that I was a part of that statistic, so I had to record from isolation. So as UK infections passed 14 million, tensions have been brewing between Westminster and Wales, with Welsh leader Mark Drakeford accusing the UK government of being, quote unquote, politically paralysed when it comes to their reluctance to ramp up restrictions. Because of course, England is the odd one out in that sense. Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have all tightened up their rules on things like hospitality and sports games attendance, for example. In terms of the media landscape then, um, a heavy focus on the front pages this past week on staff absences within NHS England, even resulting in the need for military personnel to pitch in in hospitals in London. Uh, But another big focus actually on the news agenda, which you'll be pleased to know was significantly less bleak, was this rush amongst UK tourists to book trips abroad now that the government have announced fully vaccinated travellers don't need to bother with this pre-departure COVID PCR testing ritual. The travel company Jet2 were quoted saying demand has been reaching pre-COVID levels and EasyJet claimed that bookings rose by 200% in the space of a week. Looking at retail now, Asda, which is the third largest supermarket chain, has backed out of their promise to stock only 100% British beef on its shelves. Now, the extra kind of awkward thing about this is that they only made this kind of 100% British beef commitment back in October 2021. Speaking to the BBC, Asda's spokesperson referred simply to price um, as the justification for this U-turn now that they're going back to stocking a mixture of British and Irish beef. Now, I checked this out to see about the price difference. The Irish examiner says that Irish beef is 20% cheaper. And then if you look at British beef, it is increasingly expensive. And that's due to a multitude of mostly external factors like the cost of fuel, soaring costs of cow feed, fertiliser, all of these things that are mostly, it seems, beyond the control of these farmers. And that brings me to this incredible amount of backlash amongst British beef farmers, uh, particularly because back in October, the National Beef Association had written a letter to Asda 
praising them for their quote-unquote patriotic support. Now, naturally, because these external factors are what's sort of playing into British beef prices, as does competitors will be feeling that same pinch when they're buying British beef. But I was interested to see if anyone would be following Asda's footsteps. And as this backlash is rolling on, it appears that none of the other chains who have made similar pledges fancy doing that. So, you know, brands like Morrison's, Waitrose, M&S, Co-op, that none of them are following suit so far. In fact, Co-op released a statement saying... We are proud to support British beef farmers and Co-op was the first national supermarket to commit to only selling 100% own brand British meat and poultry. It is interesting how, you know, of course, we're all feeling the pinch as the cost of living increases and we're always consistently obsessed with price. But patriotism, you know, protecting British interests, looking after the little guy, we know that those things are big triggers for large chunks of the British public. Ever since Brexit, this narrative has been really prominent. So then if you add in this story of Asda actively pulling out of a promise that they made, a quote-unquote patriotic promise, and pulling out of it so quickly as well, I think they're under more of a spotlight than, say, Tesco, who have always been selling a mixture of Irish and British beef. Right, I've noticed a key theme in the media this week, and that has been the influence of kind of non-political figures. So people like Instagram influencers and sports people and YouTubers. The question is, how much of what they say actually holds weight on much wider issues like politics and public health? And then going on from that, how much should we be holding them to account in the same way that we would, you know, other more traditional kinds of influential figures. Now, the first story that fed into this was around ex-Love Islander, Instagram influencer and Pretty Little Thing creative director Molly Mae Haig, who appeared on the podcast Diary of a CEO, and she received a lot of negative feedback for saying this. Beyonce has the same 24 hours in a day that, that we do. And I just mm. think like it's literally, you're given one life and it's down to you what you do with it. Like you can literally go in any direction. And when I've spoken about that before in the past, I have been slammed a little bit with people saying, you know, like it's easy for you to say that, you know, you've grown up and you've not grown up in poverty. You've not grown up, you know, with major money struggles. So if you to sit there and say that we all have the same 24 hours in a day, it's not correct. And I'm like, but technically what I'm saying is correct. We, we do. That bit about having the same amount of hours um, in a day as Beyonce, that was the bit that particularly seemed to rub people up the wrong way, with Twitter users accusing Haig of being tone deaf and unaware of her own privilege. In fact, her Wikipedia page was edited briefly to rename her Molly Mae Thatcher with the description, she is best known for having worked harder than anyone less successful than her. Um, but that's since been edited back. Now, in response, her team did release a statement. It said, Molly May acknowledges that everyone is raised in different ways and from different backgrounds, but her comments were in reference to timing, hard work and determination in her own life. I mean, listening to it, was it tone deaf? Yes, it was, of course. I mean, if another 22-year-old who has completely different circumstances hasn't been on Love Island and perhaps has responsibilities, you know, like um, caring for elderly people parents or a disabled sibling for example that kind of language you know you can do whatever you want it's not fair and it's not remotely realistic let's just be real about that but the thing I've been considering is how do brands respond to stuff like that you know the brands that work with these influencers I suppose 
they're a bit held hostage because these are often extremely young people who are living every minute of their lives publicly and therefore they're making every mistake instantly public, even if those mistakes are, generally speaking, quite forgivable. And it's not like a lot of these brands can just ignore the influencer market altogether and avoid the risk because the size of that market has exploded. You know, it's more than doubled since 2019. Uh, I checked it out. In 2021, the market was valued at 13.8 billion US dollars. So I do wonder if um, this issue of kind of influencers putting their foot in their mouths, if it is an integral part of crisis preparation and crisis management amongst the brands they work with. Because if it's not, it certainly should be. Uh, And the next story I'll talk you through is precisely the reason why, because another influencer by the name of Elle Darby has lost over 100,000 followers this week since racist tweets that she posted during her teenage years have come out. Now, she's put out an apology video on YouTube and she's sworn to further educate herself. But to me, this raises alarm bells, particularly on behalf of the brands that Elle Darby has worked with you know, of which there are many, because this feels like a massive oversight, uh, especially on the grounds of due diligence. You know, step one really should be going back through every tweet and every post that this person has ever put online before they, you know, sign the dotted line and affiliate themselves. Is that cynical? Sure. But is it the world we live in? Well, yeah, in the days of a $13.8 billion influencer marketing world, absolutely it is. Finally then, it's been an extremely dramatic week for tennis player Novak Djokovic, who was denied entry to Australia despite insisting that he'd been offered exemption to the vaccine travel requirements. And that was on the grounds that he had had COVID last month. Australian authorities decided to cancel his visa, at which point he was transported to a detention immigration hotel in Melbourne. But on Monday the 10th of January, he appealed and won the court battle to stay in Australia. But before this verdict happened, I discussed the optics of this whole mess with this week's journal on the go, sports broadcaster Tom Clayton. And if you like sports talk on the radio, you will have heard his voice because he's on everything. Um, talk sport, Times Radio, Virgin Radio, the BBC. And first of all, I asked him, who comes out worse in all of this? Is it Djokovic? Is it the tournament? Or is it the Australian authorities? Well, to be honest, I think it's completely subjective, really, because I think a lot of the people in Australia who have had to deal with very severe lockdowns themselves, they've been very under they've been under very severe restrictions right the way throughout the pandemic. You know, I think they'll be quite glad to see that Djokovic wasn't given an exemption by the Australian government initially. On the flip side of that, the people of Serbia want to see Novak Djokovic win the title, become the greatest ever tennis player of all time. And, you know, they're very much in Djokovic's court. It's interesting from the neutrals perspective, because I think actually the people who come off worse, as you mentioned, are actually the tournament. Because ultimately the people who gave him the initial exemption and then can't follow it up with the government also giving that exemption, it's, it looks bad on them because it creates a precedent for them saying that, look, we've made one rule because this player is who he is. Yeah. He's, won the last, he's won the last three Australian Opens in a row and he's won it nine times. It'd be a disaster for them, a PR disaster for them, if they didn't have Djokovic on board. Looking ahead then, I think that this Djokovic story 
is likely to just dominate this entire tournament now, whether he gets in or not. And undeniably, I imagine the players will all be asked about this. What do you think their approach should be? You know, ultimately, there are going to be players who comment on it. But if I, if I was a player, if I was a PR person, I'd be saying, you do not say a word to that person. <laughs> you do not give the press anything. You're right. just here to play tennis. Yeah, I can see why that would be the safest route. Do you think then that Djokovic could become a kind of poster boy for groups who disapprove of vaccine mandates or even for outright anti-vax groups? I don't know about po- poster boy. I don't know if that's that's the right way to phrase it, but he's certainly been someone who is in that conversation with people who are against COVID vaccinations because all the way through this pandemic, since the vaccines were rolled out, he's been very much, you know, I don't want to say my beliefs on this, yeah, but, it's, but that's kind of giving a clear indication. It's all about reading his words, reading his body language, which is so important. And as a sports journalist, for me, I've got to kind of cut through that and find what he's really saying. And ultimately, I think... If he had been vaccinated, this wouldn't have been an issue. I think he would have been let in. We would have been talking about Novak Djokovic going into the tournament next week as the favourites. Yeah. As a a sports journalist, is it often the case that if a player or a star omits information, then it's usually the more controversial likelihood. Of course. Yeah, behind their silence. Of course it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from not hearing anything from Djokovic, I think we're hearing an awful lot more about his opinion. How much influence do sports stars' opinions on things like COVID vaccines and other kind of more political or public health-related matters, how much do their opinions have on a wider scale on the public, in your view? Well, I mean, the thing that I found startling before Christmas was that 75% of players across the English Football League were either fully vaccinated or intended to be fully vaccinated, or, or as the EFL said, were on a vaccine journey whatever that means. But the startling thing about that is that 25% of players didn't intend to get the vaccine at all. This was in the middle of December. So this isn't this isn't sort of just at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. This is something that is genuinely still an issue among sportsmen. And I think when you see those figures, I think it adds fuel to the fire of people not being vaccinated. And again, it's their, their choice entirely. But sports stars do have... They, they have to appreciate they're in a position where they will influence people and what they say will often help someone make their own mind up about, you know, about whether they want to get the vaccine or, or with other aspects of life as well. You know, at the end of the day, the most followed people on Twitter generally tend to be sportsmen. They tend to be people in positions of power as well. So I think there's a huge amount of influence there and I think it will... I think it does affect society. Thank you to Tom for that and thank you for listening. That's all from me for another week. Links to get in touch and to read our Media First blog are all discoverable in the episode description. The Media Landscape is produced by 37, which is a journalist-led content creation agency. We help our clients tell their stories in a way that wins hearts and minds. You can find out more by visiting 37 dot agency that's spelled out t-h-i-r-t-y-s-e-v-e-n dot agency 
This podcast is sponsored by Media First, who design and deliver bespoke media, message development, presentations and crisis communications training. Find out more by visiting mediafirst.co.uk. That's spelled out media, F-I-R-S-T, dot co, dot U-K.